0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. King Charles breathes a sigh of relief over the cash for honors scandal. We take a deep dive into Harry, Meghan and social media. And Prince William is under fire over the Women's World Cup. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. So for almost two years, King Charles has had hanging over him the prospect of a criminal trial tied to one of his charities, the Prince's Foundation. Um, So at its heart, these were allegations that the organization's chief executive, Michael Fawcett, offered a Saudi tycoon help securing a knighthood and citizenship in exchange for donations. So um, effectively, there was this project. Uh, It it was actually a few projects. The central one was Dumfries House. It's like an old, big, big, big stately home up in Scotland, um, which Charles wanted to kind of save from falling into wreck and ruin it was kind of considered economically non-viable to keep this building going by a lot of charities that do that kind of thing and so Charles swooped in, decided he was going to save it and try to use it to create economic and employment opportunities for people in a depressed part of Scotland. So perfectly good, perfectly valid project but he needed money bear in mind this was A project that a lot of charities that specialise in doing this kind of thing, like National Trust, had considered to be economically non-viable, so they weren't getting involved. Charles was. He needed money to fund it. A Saudi tycoon comes along and says, oh yeah, sure thing, great. And... An email from Michael Fawcett appears to show some kind of deal being done for donations to this charity in exchange for help securing knighthood and citizenship. At least that is the allegation that the police were investigating. An internal probe found evidence that communications and coordination did take place between the CEO, that's Michael Fawcett, and so-called fixers regarding honours for a donor between 2014 and 2018. It said the trustees did not know about it and the palace has also previously said Charles did not know either. But a police investigation was launched. The Metropolitan Police have now announced that no criminal charges will be brought after interviewing witnesses and reviewing more than 200 documents and also interviewing two people under caution. A statement read, With the benefit of the Crown Prosecution Service's early investigative advice and after careful consideration of the information received as a result of the investigation to date, the Met has concluded that no further action will be taken in this matter. Two people interviewed under caution, one in their 50s, one in their 40s, back in September, will therefore not be charged and will not face a trial. Now, this all sparked outrage from Republic, which I'm sure regular listeners of the show will remember that it's Britain's anti-monarchy campaign group. The CEO, Graham Smith, has been on the show before, and he told Newsweek this week, this is wholly dishonest and appalling because it was Charles and Fawcett that were reported to the police, not the charity, and the evidence in the letter from Fawcett was pretty damning. It would appear that the royals can live without any fear of consequences for any of their actions. Now, the central evidence in this case is uh, a communication between Michael Fawcett and an aide to this tycoon, Sheikh Murray Mubarak Mahfouz bin Mahfouz. And it was published by the Mail on Sunday in 2018. And it read, In light of the ongoing and most recent gener- generosity of his Excellency Sheikh Murray Mubarak Mahfouz bin Mahfouz, I am happy to confirm to you in confidence that we are willing and happy to support and contribute to the application for citizenship. I can further confirm that we are willing to make an application to increase His Excellency's honour from honorary CPE to that of KBE, so that's a knighthood KBE, in accordance with Her Majesty's Honours Committee. Both of these applications were made in response to the most recent and anticipated support of the Trust and in connection with his ongoing commitment generally within the United Kingdom. I hope this confirmation is sufficient in allowing us to go forward. So that really does appear to quite explicitly tie support for the charity to support for the application for citizenship and a knighthood. Now, that all sounds pretty morally damning to me. You know, how can anyone take the honour system seriously or indeed the citizenship process seriously? If someone with loads of cash, basically, can just swoop in get their checkbook out and get the backing of, at the time Charles was a future king, he was Prince of Wales at the time, he's now the king, um, in exchange for donations to what is clearly a good cause, but needless to say, you know, this is about whether people can have faith in the honour system to be doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is giving recognition to the people who deserve it most. Now, if the main reason or a substantial reason why you're getting an honour is because you've donated money to a charity the king likes, that is not the honour going to the person who's most deserving. This, for me, is just one of the things that's really frustrating about the British police process is you never really get a sense of why decisions not to prosecute have been made. So, OK, fine. If a case goes to trial and there, the person is acquitted, all the evidence plays out in court and you can get a kind of sense of, OK, well, you know, the case was strong in this area, but maybe weak in that area. And you can piece it together in your own mind, even if you don't definitively know what the jury based their decision on. But if a case never gets as far as court, then you don't get to see most of the evidence and who's to say there isn't a reason why the crown prosecution service considered that there was no legitimate basis for bringing a prosecution or that there wasn't enough evidence or whatever it might be you know maybe there is something that they stumbled upon that would change our perception of this issue but because people are obviously going to assume that this is an establishment stitch-up we're left with this situation where basically this is going to undermine trust in democracy um I guess I should say straight away that there was, in my view, no real prospect that Charles was ever going to be prosecuted constitutionally, at least not from the point that he became king back in September last year. Prosecutions in Britain are technically brought by the Crown, and the Crown cannot prosecute itself. So the the kind of traditional wisdom is that A serving monarch in the UK cannot be prosecuted or put on trial in the conventional way. If Charles was going to be prosecuted, he would have to be put on trial by Parliament in a kind of special process, And that was never going to happen because the two main parties in Britain are currently both pretty pro-royal. So neither would do that. I mean... The Conservative, I'm not sure there's, you know, ever been a post war Conservative Prime Minister who would have gone down that road in this situation. And right now, the leader of the Labour Party wouldn't either. I would really like to know, though, and I actually think it's pretty important for the public to find out, why no other prosecutions followed based on the evidence published in the media. Otherwise, it really does undermine British democracy to have this cloud of suspicion and this idea that the king's reputation was prioritised above justice and the protection of the honours system. Um, this kind of thing is it's like, it's how conspiracy theories start um, and are fuelled and that further undermines democracy across the board it's how you kind of it contributes to this sort of generalized distrust in institutions um, and this kind of tendency for people to lean into post-truth politics that you know this idea that everything's a stitch up and you can't trust anything or anyone Um, so i think it's a complete scandal basically that we don't get to know in more detail why this decision was made i mean if it you know if people know maybe they will maybe they'll agree who's to say they won't um, but what I would say is this might not actually be over. It is still possible that we will get a uh, adverse ruling by the Office for the Scottish Charity Regulator because they are carrying out a regulatory investigation. So that doesn't have the same force as a criminal investigation by the police. Nobody will go to jail or be put on trial, but they could sanction the charity which in a, like in a way, that would be kind of sad on some level because it is a good cause. And, you know, I think what Republic were really pushing for, they were one of the people who reported this issue to the police, was for accountability for Charles. And, you know, the charity getting sanctioned arguably is not accountability for the individuals who made the decisions. But, you know, needless to say, we might learn a lot more about this and there might be some form of, of justice done, arguably. Um, needless to say, a huge sigh of relief this week, I think, from Michael Fawcett, the former chief executive of Charles's uh, charity, the Prince's Foundation, and also for Charles. Um, and I just want to note one final thing, which is that the Prince's Foundation is not the same as the Royal Foundation, which is William and Kate's charity. And it's also not the same as the Prince's Trust, which is the charity that... Charles has had going for years and years and years, dating back to the 70s, which helps young people get into work. Totally different organisations. The Prince's Foundation was a charity created in, I think, 2017 or 18 to bring together a few of his other good causes. So that's the one we're talking about. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break, but just before I go, a reminder to rate and review The Royal Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I'm back, we'll look at exclusive research Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, Newsweek has been taking a look at social media conversations about the royal family, including how William, Kate, Harry and Meghan all match up against each other on TikTok and separately on Twitter. X or Twitter or whatever we're going to call it now, as well as Reddit, blogs and forums. Uh, so the first piece of research here was by Hootsuite. They're a kind of brand intelligence platform. And they we asked them to look at the conversations on TikTok um, over a 30-day period, straddling kind of July and August. So 30 days is as far back as you can go on TikTok. You can't get data that goes back further than that, um, at least not through this kind of special backdoor that some of these companies have into TikTok's data. Um, the take-home appears to be that Harry and Meghan are much more talked about than William and Kate, but a lot of the conversation is negative, TikTok users have been comparing Megan and Kate, and they appear to be siding with Kate. Um, now, part of the reason we did this research is because we've been watching this shift play out in real time over the past eight months to a year. It's been become really visible that a lot of the kind of very positive content about Harry and Megan has been drying up, I think, and is still definitely very you know, very present and uh, highly engaged with in relation to William and Kate. Um, it's been really visible to us here at Newsweek that, you know, the most liked posts... Um, for all four royals, there's a huge number of really positive fan-generated videos about William and Kate. You know the sweet moments, the cute little interactions between them at royal engagements, or from documentaries, and you know that were published years ago and everyone's forgotten about, or whatever um, stuff dug out of archived footage and that kind of thing. Um, but those videos have really become few and far between for Harry and Meghan. instead, what we see a lot of is actually fan-generated criticism and hostility towards, or I say fan generation, but I guess anti-fan generated. And I actually, in a way, I kind of feel like at the moment I see fewer attacks by your kind of big name stars, your kind of Pierce Morgans or your Lady Colin Campbells, depending what kind of tier of star you want to look at. Pierce Morgan obviously being quite significantly more established and famous than Lady Colin Campbell, but needless to say, I'm seeing less of the big names coming in recently, but more just like kind of ordinary people taking a swing at them all the time and that actually carries with it its own problems because a lot of those for anti-fan videos actually do dive into conspiracy theories and are slightly less kind of tied to the factual reality that um, some of the bigger name critics like to talk about um, whether you like them or whether you loathe them people like Piers Morgan are part of the mainstream media and in that sense are perhaps a little less likely to delve into the realms of complete fantasy. Uh, And what I think as well is striking about TikTok is um, how much of a kind of young person's platform it is. And it was actually turned out to be more a place for young people than I was even expecting. So Hootsuite's research showed us that around 50 to 60% of royal TikTok is kind of like your Gen Z, kind of eighteen to twenty-four year olds, with just twenty percent coming from over thirty-fives, um, and I say fifty to sixty rather than giving an exact number because the number like varies slightly depending on whether you're looking at Harry, Meghan, William, or Kate. But all four, it comes in in that kind of fifty to sixty bracket. So. Two observations here. One, a lot of people think that TikTok is a nicer, funnier, friendlier place than Twitter. But as far as Meghan and Harry are concerned, that's not the case. And number two, many people think that Harry and Meghan are more popular among young people, which certainly was true in Britain back in the day, although now they're pretty, pretty unpopular with everyone in Britain, to be perfectly honest. Um, so what exactly did Hootsuite uncover? Well, Eileen Kwok, their social marketing specialist, told me Meghan and Harry are the most talked about couple on TikTok, but the conversation tends quite negative, with most people being highly critical about their relationship. While hashtag Harry and Megan has 5 million views, hashtag William Kate has only 715,000 views. TikTokers are also comparing the couple, but have taken an even closer look at Megan and Kate specifically and they're taking sides. The comment section of videos revolving around the royal family are heated with advocates and critics of their every move, from their behaviour and fashion sense to their looks and interactions. So that is kind of the big picture perspective that Hootsuite was able to give us. They had a load of specific data that they pulled for us, and we did some of our own research as well, just to add another layer of detail. Um, But I don't want to get too bogged down in that right now because I've got some other stuff to talk about. So please do uh, check out our story. Uh, If you want to find it, the headline was Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have bombed on TikTok. So you can search for that and it will have all the data there. Um, But we also worked with another platform called Pulsar. This is an audience intelligence platform. And they looked at X, again, formerly Twitter, now called X, Reddit, blogs, and forums over a much longer period. This was 12 months. So this is kind of like the last year in royal commentary. Um, so here we got to see how the trajectory of the conversations around the royals changed over the course of like the death of Queen Elizabeth II in September which was obviously a mass, sort of massive spike in conversations but also crucially through the release of Netflix and Spare in December and January and obviously on you know th- through the coronation too and on to now um, and it was a really interesting piece of research because of that longer time span which isn't possible on TikTok but it is possible on these platforms to get data that shows you um, how the conversation has been evolving over a much longer period. So there were obviously massive spikes in discussion of the royals back in September when um, Britain was plunged into mourning by the death of the Queen. But it was also, um, you know, back then it it was Harry and Meghan really who saw negative sentiment spike and outweigh positive sentiment. Whereas for William and Kate, positive sentiment continued to outweigh negative sentiment at that time. But also for Harry and Meghan, that hostility died down. And by the time it came for them to release the Netflix documentary Harry and Meghan and also Harry's book Spare in December and January, they were kind of reasonably well positioned. You know, the hostility had gone. They were back to a kind of level playing field and, you know, a whole kind of field lay ahead of them to kind of have their chance to make their case to the world. But this time... The negative sentiment again spiked for them. It did actually spike for William and Kate as well, and negative sentiment outweighed positive sentiment for the Waleses, uh, but it was only temporary, and the hostility towards the Sussexes. Was far greater than the hostility towards the Waleses. It was also, and I think this is possibly the crucial bit, is it was also more enduring. So, you know, as the months passed, William and Kate recovered and the negative sentiment dropped off quite dramatically and got, you know, reached quite a low level fairly fast. Uh, at the same time, that hostility towards Harry and Meghan definitely died down, but it endured at a higher volume. Um, And there were, you know, there were a couple of times over the intervening months since when positive sentiment did outweigh negative sentiment. There were also a number of times when the opposite was true. So Harry and Meghan have tended to have basically a kind of a a body, a group of hardcore supporters who do keep their positive post levels up. They keep the positive commentary flowing, but they've also uh, actually got a greater degree of criticism now than they did a year ago back in August 2022 before the Queen passed away. Um, So it feels, you know, they've always had this on Twitter, that there have been a body of people criticising them and many, you know, column inches have been given and also much airtime has been given, including in their own documentary, to the fact that actually historically a lot of that on Twitter has originated from quite a small number of people. But what seems to have happened over the time following Spare is that there is now like a greater, you know, in an ongoing way, when the news agenda isn't particularly focusing on them or overexposing them, there is a greater degree of background negative noise about them on Twitter, Reddit, blogs and forums. Um, so, I mean, you know, what does this all mean? Uh, well, obviously spare was very critical of William. I mean, it's cool. Every, every story has to have two things. Well, it has to have a bunch of things, but two things that it has to have are a protagonist and an antagonist, a hero and a villain. And the title of the book spare does lend itself to that brotherly relationship, you know, Harry the hero, William the villain. Arguably, you could say the media is also very definitely the villain of Harry's book, but um, his relationship with William is probably the core of it. Uh, People who write fiction are often told to focus on a core relationship that sits at the heart of the story because readers find relationships between, very strong relationships between two people, very compelling, and that is the relationship that sits at the heart of Spare. So, Harry took a big swing at his brother, accused him of, you know, a physical fight uh, during an argument over Meghan. Um, it talked about his his alarming baldness, described how his familiarity, his likeness to Princess Diana was fading with time. You know, he also kind of dragged Kate into it as well, and even Princess Charlotte. So, the gloves really came off. But America, it would seem, sided, or... And You know, this is international data, so not just America, but the world, it would seem sided with William and Kate in the long run, even though there was a spike in criticism for a short period of time. Now, we know from polling that America has actually started to soften its stance on Harry and Meghan again. So there is every chance that they might still be able to rescue their situation and work their way back into the country's good books possibly not so much in britain but in america i think it's definitely still all to play for and they do also have another chance coming right up because the invictus game starts in september so this is harry's big tournament for wounded ex-servicemen and women and um, past and present and um he usually does a big us tv interview at the tournament so i'll be looking out for who gets that Uh, what they talk about, what they ask him about, and crucially, whether he gets lured into making any more ill-judged comments about his family, because I think that is what really turns people off, is the attacks on his own family. So, if if the discipline wavers and he winds up taking a swipe at another family member, that could trigger another spike in negativity towards him. Or if he can kind of keep it positive and on message, then that could be a chance to kind of re-energize their relationship with the US public. Now, that was obviously all a lot uh, and very data based but I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, please do follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston, and you will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, Prince William apologises for letting down England's lionesses. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. So just one more issue to discuss here and England has been gripped by the Women's World Cup. Um, the Lionesses, which is England's football team, uh, for those who haven't been following, they made it to the final and it really felt like it was possible they would win. And if they had done, it would have sent the country crazy. England last won the World Cup in 1966. That date is seared into the memory of... Of every English person, whether they really, honestly, whether they're a football fan or not. Uh, By football, I mean soccer, of course. Now, the Lionesses are the women's team, and it was also great to see so much uh, excitement about the women's game. And uh, also, Prince William was president of English football's governing body, the FA. Uh, was urged to fly out to Australia to watch the game, to watch the final and support them. And he didn't. Um, and he had to apologise for this. And there was a frenzy of commentary uh, with people suggesting he let the side down. Um, some people said that if it had been the men's team, he would have been there in a heartbeat. Obviously, we can't know that for sure, um, but it's you know it's not a great situation to be in as the future king to have people say that at all, and to not really be in a position to answer that back. Um, on the other hand, it was suggested that going to Australia, which counts Britain's monarch as its king, before his father, King Charles, would have been a breach of royal protocol. Uh, in other words, Charles became king September. He hasn't had a chance to go out there yet, to go to Australia. He's supposed to, as the monarch, be the first royal family member to visit. Now, I would buy this explanation a lot more if what people were asking for was a kind of formal royal visit. You know, meet the Prime Minister, go to a load of charity events, all the kind of pomp and pageantry that you might expect from an official royal visit. But I don't personally see why William could not have simply gone in his capacity as the president of the FA and not representing the king. I can't see any issue under those circumstances. Let's say he just goes out there. He doesn't do a single other thing apart from sit in the stands at the stadium and maybe, you know, let's say England win, go onto the pitch, shake some hands with the players and then go straight to the airport and go home like who could object to that it's not a state visit it's not an official royal visit he's not doing the whole thing of going and you know meeting crowds gathered in the street he's not doing that he's just going to the game in his capacity as president of the FA um, to give a comparison, there was a period, I remember, when there was some pressure on Charles to visit Israel, but the Foreign and Commonwealth Office didn't want him to, for one reason or another, basically to do with the political sensitivity um, in the region. And um, it's obviously very complicated if you go to Israel, you go to the, the Palestinian territories, etc., etc., etc. So, um, at the time, Charles had been to Israel. He'd been in a personal capacity. Uh, he just didn't go as a royal because that was what the Foreign Office considered to be too sensitive. I remember doing stories on this. It it was about 2017 or 2018. It all flared up and people were trying to urge him to go. And I remember speaking to um, contacts at the time who said, well, look, it's not. actually nothing to do with Charles. It's not his decision. There's a particular committee on the Foreign and Commonwealth Office which decides on official royal visits. Um, And Charles had personally been to Israel a couple of times. I think one was for a funeral. Um, So that formula is the perfect blueprint that would have given William permission to go in spite of the sensitivities around protocol. Um, And if he had done, obviously he would have swerved these allegations that he cares more about the men's game than he does about the women's game. But it would also have given him that chance to bask in the reflected glory of a successful English soccer team. I think he's kind of, in a way, and it's sad to say it, but he's kind of let off the hook by the fact that England lost. You know, if England had won, and he'd been stuck in Britain trying to jump on the bandwagon by posting on social media from his from his you know Kensington Palace or from up in Windsor, uh, he would have looked ridiculous. He'd have been ridiculed. So. I think actually England's bad luck is in a a weird way his good luck Um, and he got away with this one. But if I was him, I would think very seriously this time and remember for future that he is going to be expected to make it to the final any time the English women's team um, get there. And if he doesn't go, he will be accused of favouritism towards the men's game versus the women's game. And that is it for this week's episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile, and get fiber powered internet at home and unbeatable five G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, go! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at Cox.com/slash Internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable five G reliability, as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H twenty twenty three results may vary. Not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.